0: Well, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. While you're finding Nehemiah 5, let me ask you a question to kind of get our minds going. And the question is, how does God fund his kingdom program? How does he pay for it? We could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. His kingdom program, the need for redemption goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had need of temporary atonement. Permanent atonement is provided for only by Christ, but they had need of temporary atonement because God had told them that if they sin, if they break His one law that they gave Him, they would surely die. They didn't drop dead. And the reason is that God provided temporary atonement. He provided that in the form of animal sacrifice. He provided blood, and he clothed them because their own nakedness was known to them because of their sin now. And so, from the very beginning, God funded his own kingdom program, even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But how does God fund his kingdom program? Well, there's, there's several ways. Sometimes he funds his, his kingdom program Miraculously. He miraculously gave the Egyptians a sudden desire to give the Israelites all their wealth right before the Israelites escaped from Egypt. That's a, that's a miracle. It's a miracle that uh, some children have said they want to try to replicate, going door to door. But that was, that was a miraculous funding. At other times, he funds his kingdom program providentially. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed by God with tremendous wealth, Because they were God's avenue to begin an entirely new nation, a chosen nation. Sometimes it's miraculous, sometimes it's providential, and other times he funds his kingdom program with a a focused effort by God's people. For example, God had given Israel the wealth of Egypt, and he instructed them now to fund the construction of the tabernacle early on in their time in the wilderness. That was a focused effort. The Apostle Paul unashamedly asked the Corinthian church and other churches for generous donations to help with his Jerusalem church fund. That was a focused effort. So sometimes it's miraculous, sometimes it's providential, sometimes there's a focused effort. I think it's safe to say, both from looking at Scripture and from our day-to-day experience, that most of the time God funds His kingdom program simply through the sacrificial faithfulness of His people. The day-to-day, week-to-week faithfulness of those that belong to Him. But this begins with a heart for God's kingdom program. And that brings us to Nehemiah 5. You recall that when the exiles lost heart for the kingdom program, the program of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, they took the wealth that had been brought with them, given by God, all the way from Persia, and instead of doing what they were called to do, they started building luxurious homes for themselves. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. But they did this instead of pursuing God's priority, which at the time was rebuilding the temple. They they diverted those funds away. And you recall what God did when their hearts turned away, as evidenced by their wallets turning away? Haggai chapter 1 records God telling the people that this is why over time their crops were thin and bare and they began to suffer from poverty and they couldn't even clothe themselves. They had these these giant nice houses, but they couldn't eat and they didn't have enough clothes. Why? God tells them because they disregarded his kingdom program. Well, now Nehemiah 5 brings us to a crisis point in the kingdom program. In this phase of the program, this is the one in which God has brought exiles back from Babylonian captivity under the rule of Persia. And now the, the next generation after them are expected to continue this work of reestablishing Israel as a nation. So the exiles have been rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. That's the stage we're at right now. And they accomplished the first phase. The first phase is recorded in chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, and the people had a heart to work. And then we record the finishing of the wall in chapter 6, verse 15, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Now it seems best to view Nehemiah chapter 5 as happening sometime between those two times. The timing isn't really the important issue though. What's at stake here is the funding of God's kingdom program. Because the Jews have come to a financial crisis of epic proportions, of disastrous proportions. So here's what's happening. Nehemiah is back in Judea as the governor, representing the Persian king, and he is here on his first governorship, which would last 12 years. He would be uh, going back to, to uh, Persia for a while, and then he would come back for a second term. That 12 years length of time is referenced later in our text here in chapter 14, or verse 14 rather. And a crisis has arisen here in the midst of God's people who are doing the work of rebuilding the wall in the city. That's that's their main goal. Their main task is rebuilding. And in fact, this is a crisis so bad that the wives of the workers are issuing a general protest. And interestingly, it's against some of the Jewish brothers. But we're not told why exactly immediately. Now, as we read through Nehemiah 5, There are many useful applications we could find. We could look at the evils of ridiculously high taxes. We could look at the lack of love between brothers and the Lord and how terrible that is. We could look at the desperate situation of total financial ruin. I've heard Nehemiah 5 preached a number of times. Sometimes it's preached as an anti-government, no taxes rant. Sometimes it's preached as as a basic lesson of why you should never go into debt and so forth. But the overall focus of Ezra Nehemiah doesn't support any of those things as being the focus here. The overall focus of Ezra Nehemiah is the faithfulness of God to his own kingdom program. That's what the book is about. And so in reality, while all those issues that we'll see in the text are very real and they need to be dealt with on their own terms, they also actually serve as distractions to the people. It's getting them off focus, off the real purpose of The reason they're there in the first place is the offspring, the descendants of the returned exiles, and that is to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the nation of Israel. That's the point in God's kingdom program we're at, and they were called to make that happen, to be faithful. And so, although we could find lots of lessons about taxes and love and finances, that's not what the chapter is about. I'm going to keep the overall focus of this message on the bigger picture the furtherance of God's kingdom. My plan for tonight is simple. I want to just walk through this story in three parts. And we're going to, first of all, make some applications as we go. And then we'll have some final applications at the end. And and I think it's easier to walk through a story just as the story unfolds. So three parts to this story. First of all, the situation. Second, the confrontation. And third, the illustration. The situation, the confrontation, and the illustration. So let's look at the situation first. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Then there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And we'll stop right there for a moment. Something was happening between the Jews, some of the Jews at least, who were all supposed to be there for the same purpose. They were supposed to all be on the same team. And it was so bad that the wives of the workmen gave this, quote, great outcry. Now, a good wife generally lets her husband fight his own battles, as she should. But when, for example, a group of wives all show up to a church meeting to lodge a complaint, that gets everyone's attention. And this got Nehemiah's attention as the governor. Verse 2. Now there were those who were saying, we with our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. While doing the Lord's work, the the workmen's families, those who did not own land themselves, they were the hard laborers of the crew. They were having trouble even eating. And this is the case of those doing quite literally the heavy lifting of the kingdom work. They weren't being well provided for. And as we'll see here in a moment, the major reason for the burden was the, the great taxation, the taxes imposed by the Persian king. But this is not what the workers, and more notably, not what the wives are complaining about. There's nothing they can do about the taxes. That, that's going to be there. What they're complaining about is the fact that, listen carefully, their poverty is needless. It's unnecessary. It could have been avoided. That'll be made plain here shortly. Verses 3 and 4, there were others who were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Not only are the non-landowners barely making it, the landowners, what we might call in our culture the middle class, they're in serious financial trouble. They're going into impossible debt in order to pay taxes during the time of famine, which is usually caused by drought. They, They don't have any resources, and the taxes aren't letting up and so what's happening here? Well, they're, they're having to borrow money and they're, they're having to mortgage everything they own. Their, their living is being threatened. They're going into debt that would be impossible to pay back. And in fact, in this time in the ancient Near East, these workers, these families, the landowners and their families, they were having to resort not only to putting up their property as collateral on unpayable loans, but also having to put up children. And family members as collateral. Verse 5. But now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into subjugation. And we have no power in our hands to help, and our fields and vineyards belong to others. If a man couldn't repay the loan and the high interest, his sons or his daughters or even his wife or even he himself could be sold into bondage. Now, we understand this was part of the law of God to a degree. Leviticus 25, 39 and 40 explains that a Hebrew, a Jew who fell into, into terrible debt could serve his creditor as a hired hand and in essence, a form of slavery. But it was always limited. Deuteronomy chapter 15 says that he was always to be released after seven years at the most. What does that mean? It means that there was no debt that was unpayable. Every debt could be paid off in six years at the most. And so there was not to be a hopeless situation. But this situation here described in Nehemiah 5 is going to cause total ruin, the loss of a man's property, his living, his home, even even his family. And this would be devastating to the nation. Now, the tax burden was quite a challenge. The increasingly high taxes were paid in silver and in gold coins. Citizens of the empire, the Persian empire, and Judea was just one of many, many provinces. The citizens of the empire were having to mortgage fields and orchards to, to get these silver and gold coins to pay the taxes. And what happened is, is because more taxes were being paid in these silver and gold coins than silver and gold coins were actually being produced by the national treasury, fewer and fewer coins were actually in circulation. And if you know anything about economics, what happens then? You have huge inflation It became more and more difficult for the landowner who had borrowed against his property to redeem it. In other words, if his property, just to make this simple, was worth $100 and he mortgaged it and got $100, but inflation makes it worth $10,000, he can never repay that debt. And he would have to repay the inflated version of the price, not the original mortgage price. And so it just created a, a, a total calamity. Landowners lost property, they became hired laborers, they became slaves. And in this culture, they had often lost children to slavery as well. History tells us that in Egypt, for example, during this time of Persian control, families were fleeing their own farms. They were running to larger cities in Egypt to try to hide out, to just hide out in, in, the, in the town and, and just meld into the background. But the government would send officers to arrest them and bring them back to their farms and force them to work it so that they would pay their taxes. This is the very definition of totalitarianism. And What was it all for? Taxes in and of themselves are not evil. They're not wrong. But the way they were used was unhelpful. A big part of the problem was that the Persian Empire didn't necessarily invest that money back in the areas that paid the money. They didn't invest in what our time we would call an infrastructure, for example. Instead, almost all the revenues that were taken as gold and silver coins were melted down into bars and stored, just simply to increase the riches of the empire without actually using it. When Alexander the Great invaded the Persian city of Susa, in that city alone, he found in a storage area, 270, you ready for this, tons of gold. That's the equivalent today of $15 trillion in gold and 1,200 tons of silver stored all in bars, all while people across the empire were struggling to survive. Sounds like we're describing 2022, doesn't it? Well, now all these Jews described in verses 2 through 5, they're living sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom work on the wall, on the city of Jerusalem, but they're being forced into debilitating poverty. Now I want to be very clear about this and, and notice something here: neither here nor anywhere else in Scripture is there any precedent ever in the Bible for a believer giving himself into total abject need and poverty. There's never an example of that that yes, we are to give sacrificially, and we'll get to that here shortly. But why would God command men to provide for their families and yet demand that they give away everything that they need to provide for their families? He, wasn't, he wouldn't do that. He would be working at cross purposes with himself. Now, unfortunately, this is often portrayed in the church as the highest standard, the highest goal of giving to the gospel ministry. And I'd like to show you this and maybe um, get rid of one Christian myth if we can. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 Right at the end of the chapter, we find a very familiar text, a very familiar story to us, and it's often the launching point for sermons on generous giving. Mark chapter 12, the very end of the chapter, verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus is seated across from the temple treasury. It's the big box that people would put the money they're giving to the temple ministry. Verse 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amount to a quadrants. That's basically one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. That's ten minutes worth of work is what this is. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money in the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This text is almost universally taught that this woman is a model. She is somebody to be emulated, to be copied, to be an example. That she's an example of the faithful giver to the gospel ministry, that she's nothing whatsoever like the wicked leaders of Israel who have corrupted the true faith of Israel. Is that what this is talking about? Well, first of all, giving is not the main subject of this story. So that can't be the case. Even if it was the main subject, what's the lesson? Well, there's countless varieties of applications put forward in the past centuries, and some of them are so much a part of Christian teaching that they're now accepted as as gospel truth that if you ask the average christian what is the story of the the widow's might the widow's coin what is that about well it's about generous giving that's become so much a part of our culture that that we've forgotten to actually question what the text says some sermons some lessons some whole books will say that the lesson is giving is not measured in how much you give but by how much you held back i don't even know what that means Others would say giving is measured by the level of self-denial and sacrifice. That it's not the amount that matters, but the sacrifice that matters. The, the most dangerous lessons are the ones that have, uh, have grains of truth, but now they're, they're not completely true. And of course, the most common lesson is that this woman had a selfless attitude of service, and therefore she gave all that she had, which is most pleasing to God. But all of those thoughts completely ignore the context. First of all, context is not about giving there's nothing in the story that tells us anything about the widow nothing it says she was poor it doesn't tell us of her attitude doesn't tell us of her heart doesn't tell us that she was faithful doesn't tell us she was thankful doesn't tell us she was sacrificial and you'll notice something here jesus leaves something out and the silence screams at us what did he leave out he left out any command to act like her that's not there. What comes right before this? Mark twelve thirty eight, And in his teaching, he was saying, beware the scribes who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus' is warning of the religious leaders who are using their position to get rich. They're devouring widows' houses. How? By, by telling them that they need to give all they possibly can in order to please the Lord. Do we see that happening today? We see that happening in the prosperity gospel. And we see it happen in Roman Catholicism. It happens all the time. Why, why is the Roman Catholic religion so well-funded? Because people give out of guilt and give out of a desire to, to please God, make God happy with them. This is what started the great reformation, by the way, was exposing the fact that the church, so to speak, was selling indulgences so that they could pay for the remodeling of the Sistine Chapel. Selling salvation for family, selling salvation for friends. What were they doing? They were devouring widows' houses. That's what comes right before, what comes right after it. Chapter 13, verse 1. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. He has just pronounced judgment on Jerusalem and on her false perversion of the true faith in the Lord, and that would come to pass in AD 70 when Rome destroys the temple. Now, why is what comes before and what's at, what comes after important? Because in the Gospel of Mark, about nine times, he uses this technique that what comes before an event and what comes after an event explains the event. The widow is not the hero of this story, she's the victim. She's the victim of false Jewish teaching of legalism that says that by giving everything that she has, she'd be found pleasing to the Lord. She's been duped. She's been taken advantage of. There's no guarantee she's a believer at any level here. In fact, we could say that she has not been taught to have faith. She's been taught to do works. And that's not how we come to God. And so she is the victim of false teaching. Now, back in Nehemiah, yes, the workers on the wall and their families are, are making a sacrifice in order to further God's kingdom program. But God never in Scripture asked the believer to give even that which he needs to live on. Now, I want you to be reminded here, the taxes that were being imposed were not the complaint. The, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. That's the complaint. Why was this happening Remember the complaint was against the fellow Jews, those who were also in Israel supposedly with the singular unified joined purpose of forwarding God's kingdom program, rebuilding the nation. That's the situation. Here's the confrontation. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 5. The confrontation, there's there's going to be a shock and a surprise to the reader. Because when I when I tell you and when most people quickly read through Nehemiah 5 and they see that, um, that, that the issue here is the taxes that need to be paid to the king. We might tend to jump to, well, that's the problem. The taxes are the problem. But there's a shock and a surprise here. We know that the people are having to sell and mortgage their futures. They're even putting up their children as collateral in desperation to pay these taxes But we also know that the ones the people are angry with are fellow Jews, not the Persians. So what's the connection? Here's the shock in verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted within my own heart and contended with the nobles and the officials. These are Jews and said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. This is the shock. The ones who are taking financial advantage of the workers and their families are fellow Jews. They're the leaders. They're the nobles. They're the officials. They're even some of the priests. They're the ones letting their countrymen borrow from them and then taking their property when they can't pay it back. In verse 6, Nehemiah is very angry at this horrific injustice and he, he does some thinking I consulted within my own heart. He, he does some thinking. And after this thinking, he confronts these leading Jews directly. And he accuses them of exacting usury. And he does it all at once. Nehemiah tends to do this. He tends to gather everybody together. He gets this great assembly. He doesn't go person to person and, and say, you know, you, you might want to rethink your attitude toward your brothers here. No, he gets everybody all together at once. And like a good leader, he doesn't tell them why. And then he lays it on him. And he says, you are exacting usury. Usury speaks of high interest loans or some sort of impossible burden. It's it's a general word that just means imposing a burden. And a lot of ink has been spilled trying to determine exactly the wicked nature of these transactions. But consider this. First of all, there was no law against giving loans. In fact, verse 10 is a little bit of a shock as well because we find that Nehemiah himself was giving loans. So how can he be condemning the other leaders without condemning themselves? So the amount isn't necessarily the issue here. And the second consideration is the, the amount, the, method, the methods, that's not our focus. The focus here is the heart. And the heart is about the mission of God. What was happening here? What was so angering to Nehemiah? The wealthiest among the people of God were treating the poorest if they as if they were strictly in a business relationship. That's how they treated them. They were essentially acting like pawnbrokers. And the very worst of motives they had was to make money no matter the cost to their own brothers. These wealthier Jews had, had completely lost sight of God's kingdom program. They, they didn't realize what they were doing to undermine the program. And instead, they were using the situation of the king's high taxes, which they could easily pay out of their own reserves. They were using that as a chance to take advantage of their poorer brothers, the ones doing the hardest labor for the kingdom. And just like the false spiritual leaders in Jesus' day, they were taking advantage of the poor to make themselves rich. But if that wasn't bad enough, what was the outcome? What were, what were Satan's purposes for this deception of the heart? Remember I said we could preach a sermon on brothers not loving one another, but that's not the main point. The point is the outcome of that. It's the same point of the outcome of disunity within the church, infighting within the church. The outcome was a subtle shift from using God's resources for God's purposes to simply looking out for themselves and forgetting about eternal heavenly things. That was Satan's plan. What should they have done? Well, what they should have done is, like Nehemiah called the wealthy among them, the the nobles, the officials, the priests, they should have called a great assembly. And these wealthier brothers should have gotten together and they should have talked about the terrible burdens of taxes being placed not only on them, but, but on all their own people. And instead of loaning money at tremendous interest and cost to the poorer among them, they should have given it. They should have paid it. Do you realize what would have happened if they had simply funded these taxes on behalf of the poorer brothers? They would have simply moved on with doing God's work. They should have seen the bigger picture that they were not to enrich themselves but they were to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. This is precisely what Paul commanded in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, that's Paul telling a joke, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, you use what you have for kingdom purposes. You look farther ahead. And now we get to what is undoubtedly a summarized version of Nehemiah's sermon in his confrontation to the wealthy. Verse 8. I said to them, We, according to our ability have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. And now would you also sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my young men are lending them money and grain. Please let us forsake this usury. Please. Give back to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, that's a tax. The new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them, its interest rather. And so he says, give it all back, start fresh. Boy, this is like a how to preach a direct sermon on giving lesson right here. First of all, he bluntly confronts their sin. He doesn't work his way around it. He just says, you're mistreating your brother's. You're doing that which is wrong. In verse 8, he points out an irony. God is freeing his people. He's bringing them back from exile and you're just enslaving them again. And third, he confronts them that they're not thinking about what God thinks of this. They're not fearing God. And they're making the name of the Lord a stink to the nations around them because God's people are eating each other alive. This is the worst thing, for example, that the church can do when the church can't get along with itself. When when, when news of, an, of, a, of a church split and a, a church argument within even one local church reaches the community, it just causes a stink. And people say, why would I follow a Christ who can't even change the lives of the people who say they follow him? And finally, in verse 10, Nehemiah had been loaning also, but he was unaware of the burden that it was placing, so... He graciously lumps himself in with the others and he said, let us forsake this usury. He's not admitting personal guilt. He's simply setting a personal example. And look what he asks of them. Start everyone over. Give everything back that you have in pledge for these loans. Just give it back. Do you realize that was what was to be normal in the Israelite society? that nobody was to be saddled with debt for a lifetime, that everything reset every seven years. Can you imagine that in, in our culture, that all your financial woes get reset every seven years? And this is right in line with the abundant teaching of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 21. Blessed is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 14.31, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Proverbs 17.5, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad that disaster will not go unpunished. Proverbs 19.17, he who is gracious to a poor man lends to Yahweh, lends to God. That's how good it is to be gracious to the poor, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. Proverbs 21.13, he who shuts his ear to the outcry of the poor will himself also call and not be answered. 22.9, he who is generous will be blessed for he who gives from his food to the poor. Proverbs 22.16, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or gives to the rich will only come to lack. Why do people give to the rich? So that they'll get a favor in return later, Right. Proverbs 28.8, he who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the lowly. What does that mean? It means that if somebody is wicked with their money, that they'll, acc- they'll accumulate all of this, and at some point, God will say, thank you very much, and give that to somebody who didn't do that. That is the transferring of the wealth of the unrighteous to the righteous. Proverbs 28.27, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. So Nehemiah is standing on good, solid, mosaic covenant ground here, that this is how they were to live. And how did the nobles and officials respond to Nehemiah's confrontation? It does a preacher good to see a humble response from the people of God because they respond with total obedience. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back. And we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you were saying. So I called the priests and made them swear that they would do according to this word. But just in case Nehemiah hadn't made his point clear, he didn't close in prayer and dismiss the, the, the crowd here. He pronounces what an end to a sermon. He pronounces an imprecatory curse on anyone who doesn't follow through on what they just committed to. Verse 13 I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not establish this word. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised Yahweh. Then the people did according to this word. And look where their focus has been restored. Do you realize what these wealthy people have just done? They've just given away a fortune. And yet, what is the result? They praised Yahweh. You cannot put a price tag on being right before God. There's no amount of money that's worth being wrong in God's sight. And I think in a sense, they were reminded of Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it, that nothing that they had actually belonged to them. All believers in God are simply funnels of God's resources. He owns it all. We read this morning in Psalm 119 that we are slaves of God. We're slaves of righteousness. What does a slave own? Nothing. We're funnels of God's resources. And now they're back on track. Now they're reminded that their means and their wealth was for kingdom work. I've noticed in my years as a pastor that often the most faithful givers in the church are not always the ones who make the most money, but they are the ones who believe most in the kingdom work of the gospel. That's the correlation, because giving is about the heart. And I have noticed at times that those with the ability to give the most can fall for the spiritual trap of believing their own legend, that they're important, and that at times they are the least faithful to give. The attitude is, and this is not me making this up, these are words that have been spoken to me, as soon as my kid's college fund is completely funded, as soon as my my car fund is done, as soon as my retirement is set, as soon as my house is paid off, as soon as all my financial goals are set, then I will graciously give whatever is left over to the Lord. That's exactly the opposite of the scriptural pattern of giving, isn't it? The Lord gets what's his first. And the net result is that those with less end up taking on more of the burden in the progress of God's kingdom program. Let me give you two direct applications to this confrontation, Nehemiah's mince-no-words sermon. He certainly wasn't trying to gain church members here at all. Two direct applications. First of all, in a few weeks, I'm going to spend a Sunday morning message, and I'm going to talk to you on the subject of a church that lives by faith. Historically, Grace Bible Church has demonstrated herself to be a church that lives by faith. And some of you know this history, but we could, we could trace our history over the past decade at least of living by faith. By faith, you determined to fund our first project after I came here almost 10 years ago, $70,000 to finish the upstairs children's ministry area on Young Street. We, we've raised $70,000 10 times, 20 times over already since then. But that was a big deal then to our, our little growing church. By faith, you determined to bring on Pastor Darren, our music worship pastor in the United States. The average church that's growing waits until its fifth hire to hire a music worship pastor. We determined to make him second because music worship is all important, right? And you did that by faith. By faith, you determined to bring on a student ministries pastor. By faith, you determined to bring on our tremendous outreach tool. That is our director of all things media, James O'Weiler. Because he reaches more people every Sunday than I ever will, just by pushing buttons. By faith, you determined to trust the Lord to give us our own facility. Just this morning, Darren and I were standing here before the morning service, just looking around, going, look what God did. With our paltry little church, look what God did, because it was by faith. I have a giant list of all the by-faith things that you've done as a church. A Bible conference, an amazing children's ministry, Four to five times the number of leaders, elders, deacons, and staff than we had 10 years ago. We we have doubled and quadrupled that. And I want you to know something. I, I have the privilege of sitting with our elders and speaking with them. Your elders are men of faith. And they are men who are more concerned with pleasing the Lord and doing the work of the ministry and less concerned with playing it safe and hedging their bets. Just this morning, we announced... Alex Barrientos coming on as our pastor over Spanish ministry. That's not because we're sitting on so much money that we're just trying to figure out what to do with it. No, it means that God blesses a church that gives to the gospel and works for the gospel and lives by faith. I worked with a church once where they were literally starving their pastor and his family, and I found out they had $5 million in the bank. They were saving it for a rainy day, and I told them the rainy day's here. It's, it's here at the moment because they became more interested in protecting the institution of the church rather than doing the work that God sent the church to do. Let me give you a second application. I meant to mention this a couple of Sundays ago, and it's been some time since we've mentioned it. And I feel badly about that, but I'll mention it now. A number of years ago, a tradition began at Grace Bible Church, which we realized we haven't even brought up in quite some time. And that was the tradition that that many of you give to our Benevolence Fund on Communion Sundays. That's a great Sunday to give to the, the Benevolence Fund because that's the day where we're most reminded of the sacrifice of Christ. And we also give a little extra out of our abundance to help the elders care for those among us who have greater needs. The church is not an organization. Church is not an institution. The church is a community. And we are to be a community together. And our Benevolence Fund is one of the ways we act like that community. And so when we're taking care of each other, then we don't have tons of church members worried about basics of life so that we can move forward in the ministry together. And so I would remind you of that. Communion Sunday is a great day to give a little extra to the Benevolence Fund. And the elders have an entire system by which we kind of screen uh, those needs and so forth. And when... When, like the repentant Jews we read about here, when we're pooling our resources to the very best of our ability, taking care of one another, being reasonable, doing great things by faith together, what is the result? Verse 13, and they praised Yahweh. It results in worship. It results in God being honored, God being glorified, God being exalted. That's the situation, that's the confrontation. Let's look just briefly at the illustration. The illustration is Nehemiah himself. He's the governor of Judea, and as such, he's very well provided for. But he sets himself up as an illustration. He shows the wealthier Jews what it looks like to think less about your own provision and to think more about God's kingdom program. Chapter 5, verse 14, Moreover, from the day that I was put in command to be their governor, In the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, for twelve years, neither I nor my relatives have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Even their young men exerted their power over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God." I also took hold of the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my young men were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not require the governor's food allowance because the slavery was heavy on this people. In other words, instead of growing wealthy on the provision, which is undoubtedly funded by the Jews themselves, he took what he was needed and no more. A little interesting note here, the meat that's described in verse 18 is approximately enough to feed 800 people a day. And it was for 150, but he didn't take it. He gave it back. Why? He didn't want to be a burden. He didn't want God's kingdom program to go on the, the back burner. He wanted God's kingdom program to be at the forefront. Now, this obviously doesn't cancel or mitigate the right duty of God's people to generously supply her shepherds. 1 Timothy 5, 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of this. But I can almost guarantee you this about Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 18. I would bet everything I own that no prosperity gospel preacher has ever preached this text one time. Only receiving what's needed and not growing extremely wealthy off the backs of his own people. I think in the list of top 10 Bible texts to avoid in the Prosperity Gospel Preachers and Cheaters Manual, I would imagine Nehemiah 5 is at the top of the never preach this list. Because it says, this is not about you, this is about kingdom work. You're just a tool in the hand of God. Now, why was Nehemiah able to do this? Why was he able to say, I'm not going to receive this massive amount of wealth coming at me. I'll I'll take what I need, but I'm not going to get wealthy. He was able to do this because he wasn't living for the moment. He was living for a future kingdom. Look at Nehemiah 5, verse 19, last verse of the chapter. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. The chapter ends in a prayer with him asking God to remember him. And the implications of this prayer are profound. And if I might say so, the implications of this prayer are premillennial. In other words, his prayer reveals a belief that what's happening in this time is not the ultimate fulfillment of the plan of God for Israel. Let me show you why this is premillennial. First of all, this is Nehemiah asking to be remembered. Meaning, in context, to remember him For what he gave up, he believes there is a future time where this will be returned to him. That the book of Proverbs, it says that when you give to the poor, when you lend to Yahweh, he will return that to you with interest. He expects the coming kingdom of God to be a material kingdom with real stuff in it. The second reason this is pre-millennial in nature shows that Nehemiah believes that what's happening right then with the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the city, this is not the final step in God's kingdom program. This is just one of the steps. There's a future time coming, a time of reward, a time of glory. And in fact, his belief in this future time becomes very obvious at the end of the book. Flip over a couple pages just briefly to chapter 13 and look how obvious his belief in the future time becomes. Nehemiah 13, verse 14. And see if this doesn't sound familiar. Nehemiah 13, verse 14. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for the house of my God and its responsibilities. In other words, reward me at a future time. Remember me. Look at verse 22 of chapter 13. Verse 22, and I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. In other words, judge the wicked at a later time. And verse 31, the whole book ends. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He believes in the future time. That's why he is able to be sacrificial in the moment. There's a third reason this is downright pre-millennial. He shows that he believes in individual rewards for individual acts of faithfulness. That yes, the people of God work together as a team, that's our job, but the individuals are rewarded for individual faithfulness In his remember me prayers, he's asking God to remember his deeds of faithfulness. Not as a way of gaining spiritual salvation, but deeds which demonstrated the reality of his salvation. That he did indeed fear Yahweh. So, through Nehemiah's leadership and through his confrontation... God expected the individual generosity of particularly the nobles, the officials, the priests, of the Jews. He expected that to win the day. And not only were the non-landowners and the landowners being ruined by the greed and the selfishness of the nobles, but more concerning God's program of, of rebuilding Jerusalem. It was being hampered. It was being harmed. It was being held back. And this chapter, I think, is a splendid reminder to us that all things belong to God. Psalm 24, 1 reminds us of that. And because all things belong to God, he has every right to lay claim on those things for his program. I want to close out our time with several applications with some broad topics. First of all, I want to ask the question, how does this help us grow in likeness? I want to point out the three groups. We haven't put them so much in three groups, but I want to point out these three groups who set an example of God-honoring and kingdom-advancing use of wealth. The first group we would call is Nehemiah himself. He modeled resisting the temptation to become wealthy off the backs of people, giving sacrificially toward God's kingdom program. The wall was being built partly because he wasn't taking on wealth himself. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy concerning leaders in the Ephesian church, who desired riches above all things. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Once leaders in a church go down the road of talking about money as far as you need to get money from God, then the the, the ministry's ruined. It's just ruined. The second group, the nobles and officials who repented, would be the second group they demonstrated in obedience to Paul's continued admonition to Timothy we read this earlier about commanding those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy command them to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share and then the third group The bottom rung, as it were, the workers and the landowners who were being oppressed, they were setting an example. Now, it wasn't right for them to be subjugated by the greedy actions of the the nobles, but they were still sacrificing to do the work of the kingdom. They were sacrificing. And it's important to remember that even the smallest in God's kingdom program, we all have a part to play. It might not feel significant, It might not feel big, but God uses the reasonable sacrificial giving of all people to further his kingdom program. Remember, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And the promise that God gave to the sacrificially giving Philippian believers holds true for all Christians who give joyfully. Philippians four nineteen, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's not a generalized promise for God to give Christians money. That's a generalized promise for God to provide for those who gave first. We always want to find the road to the cross. How does this chapter lead us to the cross of Christ? Nehemiah was first and foremost concerned with God's kingdom program. That was his priority. This particular phase, the post exile rebuilding of Jerusalem. And I want you to notice one element noticeably absent from Nehemiah's interactions and his confrontation he is not beset by worry, he's not worried. There's no anxiety for him personally. He's not taking this abundance of wealth that's being offered to him and and putting it in the bank and putting it in storehouses just to make sure he'll be okay. The text shows us that he turned down what would amount to be in great wealth as the governor. His primary concern was God's program. And so he had no worries concerning what would happen to him personally. But he did pray, remember me, remember me, remember me, remember me, remember me. This is exactly what Exactly the faith attitude that Jesus commanded in Matthew 6, when he famously urged us, seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The logic is very simple. That if your life is about pursuing the things of the kingdom, God will fund that. He will fund you. And according to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he will also fund your ability to fund kingdom work. Now, why can you have that level of assurance of provision? Well, it's sort of an argument from the lesser to the greater. What do we mean by that? You can be certain that God will provide for little things like food and water and shelter. Because at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, which gives you the right to become a child of the living God And as such, you have access to all the privileges of this honor, including the care and provision given by your loving Father. And in fact, just before urging us to seek first the kingdom, Jesus commanded anxiety-free living. He said in Matthew 6, 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. In other words, if God has guaranteed provision of forgiveness, guaranteed provision of eternal life, guaranteed provision of the sonship and the daughtership, as it were, with God, guaranteed provision of an eternity of glory with him, guaranteed all of these things, what Ephesians 1 calls these blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, why would we ever say, oh no, we might not have enough on this earth? You see how that becomes silly? And why would the church ever say, oh, no, we might not have enough? We just do the kingdom ministry. and If God wants us to do it, he'll fund it. But we always want to look ahead because Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately is about the failure of setting up the kingdom of God during that time. That we're looking ahead to a future time. So how does this text lead us to the road to Christ's coming kingdom? And I think you'll like this one. The heavy taxation by the Persian king who is a burden to the people for the enrichment of his own treasury stands in stark contrast to what will happen when Christ is reigning on earth. Will we pay taxes, as it were, when Christ is reigning on earth? Scripture says, yes, we will. But we don't characterize them as taxes. They'll be, ta- they'll be characterized as love gifts. Zechariah 14 beginning in verse 16, describes the nations of the earth who are now under Christ's millennial reign, coming annually to Jerusalem, Zechariah 14, 17, to worship the king. A few verses earlier in verse 14, we see that the wealth from the nations is going to be collected in great abundance, and it's reasonable to assume that these annual visits include the giving of gifts and treasures to the king. In the same way, going on to the eternal state, Revelation 21 gives this glorious scene in the post-millennial eternal state on new earth. The kings of the earth will bring their glory, meaning their wealth, their wares, their offerings, their products into new Jerusalem. And this is far from being some sort of oppressive tax in either of these kingdom eras. Christ loves his people perfectly, and he will never be a burden To give to him is and will always be a joy. When we launched our Joyful Generosity Giving Campaign, one of the things that we taught and said was that giving is important because it's something we'll do into eternity. There will never be a time where you're done giving to the Lord because it's a joy for us. Currently, we live in a nation ruled by sinful and corrupt people. We suffer under the burden of heavy taxation and in the coming kingdom of Christ, though, perfect justice, perfect economic conditions will prevail. And I found it, as I was looking through this text, I found it very encouraging. I found it very, very instructive that the Jews in Judea were less concerned about overthrowing a tax-heavy empire and more concerned about completing God's kingdom program for that era. And if Nehemiah is any any gauge for us to judge, The rationale is this isn't our kingdom now. We'll wait for the kingdom later when all things are made right. All things are just because this generation would not see a righteous king. Our generation doesn't see a righteous king. But the future Israel will be ruled by the king of all the kings who is himself perfectly righteous. So all things will be made perfect. So what do you have to do to get through the difficulties of this life the financial difficulties, overwhelming taxes, a a government that just takes more and more power, takes more and more resources. What what do you do? Wait for Christ to return. That's it. That's all we do. And we can do that, and you don't really have a choice because that's what we're doing, right? So we don't worry about the election coming up. You know how much difference the election is going to make in the coming kingdom program? None, none. None whatsoever. The election coming up might be like a, 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 a drug. It feels good for a day, but after that you realize that we're still in a difficult place. I hope that Nehemiah 5 encourages you that what you own is not your own, that the kingdom program must come first, and that if we wait for a king who is perfectly righteous, all things will be made right. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge that you own the earth we also acknowledge that we live in a world which strains our human ability to provide for ourselves and, and even tempts us to acquire wealth without end. Both of these extremes require, Lord, that we trust you and that we look to a future time when neither of these things will be an issue. We will always be provided for and never will we be, will we be tempted by sinful wealth might you continue to graciously provide for all of our needs such that we can sacrificially give to the kingdom program of the glorious church of Jesus Christ until that amazing day when your kingdom arrives on earth. We would pray for us here at Grace Bible Church, Lord, to be a church that lives by faith and uses what you give to us to aggressively further the kingdom of Christ. When we, as a church body, stand before the great throne of God, may we have been found faithful. May we have been found as those who pursued the kingdom program and did so faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.